Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another Mailbag, where I answer your observations, your hot takes, your questions, ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. Well over 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab. I got over 100 comments, which is awesome. No surprise in the wake of Roland Garros' excitement. I apologize for uh, the delay on this one. I imagine that some of you were looking for this video a little bit earlier in the week. Uh, but I had to kind of move around, shift around my content schedule uh, because this had to act as the content for this week. So I didn't want to post this too early and then go too long with nothing. Full transparency there. So let's get into it. Excited. Probably going to go a long time here. Let's go to the first one, which I think was the top liked comment. Could be mistaken. It's from Max Dang Vu. Gil, let's revisit that question. Who is the best men's player in the world in 2023? I can't argue against Novak, but I'd like to hear your cases for him, Carlos, and Daniil. My take is that Novak has had the best results undoubtedly. Two slams out of two. He is also number one in the rankings and race. Carlos has the highest match win percentage and when fit has been the most dominant player in the world, both stats and eye test. Daniil up until this week has been number one in the race with the most titles and the most finals. His rankings jump has been astonishing, and he has had the most complete year, not to mention his favorite part of the year is coming up. Okay. This question was a little bit tougher a couple months ago, which is a good thing, because we wanted some of these things to resolve themselves on court, and I feel like we've gotten that a little bit. But ultimately, when it comes down to answering this question, uh, for Novak, it's the importance of the majors trump all here. They trump all. Because if you attached Daniil Medvedev and Carlitos Alcaraz to a lie detector test, and you said, hey guys, would you trade Novak's year for your year? You could be Australian Open champion and Roland Garros champion. In the case of both, it's you could have three major titles right now. Would you take it or would you take your year? You best believe that both of them would say, yeah, I'll take Novak's year. Mm. Yeah, I didn't play the Sunshine Double. I didn't win a clay title until Roland Garros. Eh, I think I'm going to overlook that. I think I'll take the two slams. So it kind of comes down to that, ultimately. Alcaraz, when healthy, has he been the most efficient in converting his main draw entries into titles? Yeah. But he doesn't have a slam, and he doesn't have the head-to-head -head against Novak either. And one match is not going to swing these arguments, or at least it shouldn't if you are not falling into traps of overreacting to one match, which hopefully you're not. But it means something. It's in there. It, it's certainly a, a factor, especially when we're probably looking at those two things, you know, when it comes to who ended up winning Roland Garros and who won that match, the semifinal. Uh, those things are probably connected to each other in a pretty big way. Yeah, that's a big deal. That matters. And for a lot of the time, I think when we were looking at Alcaraz and Djokovic really not being able to distinguish themselves from each other in this question of who is the best, uh, part of it was that they just weren't even in the same draws together. But another part of it was they hadn't played. And now they have. Novak won. For Medvedev, like I don't love his argument, to be honest. He has had the, the complete year in terms of staying healthy. And playing the full calendar. Alcaraz hasn't had that. 
Novak hasn't had that. So that's good. But if I'm looking at, okay, what what has he kind of compiled in terms of accolades? I never even really liked the, well, Medvedev is number one in the race right now, and he has the most titles, so he's the best. I never really liked that argument at the time, even when it was true, because I discriminate against certain parts of the calendar, and I don't apologize for it. And it's not it's not anti-Medvedev. I've been consistent. I've I've said the same about Rublev. I've said the same about FAA. I'm not going to put as much weight into February as I do March. Sorry, not. I know Medvedev won Miami, and now he won Rome. He's got two big titles. He's had a fantastic year. Uh, but in terms of like, oh, he's got the most titles. All right, three of them were in February. He won three titles in February, which is awesome. But it's not going to be like, I'm not going to say, sit here and be like, he's got the most titles, so let's consider the idea that he's had a better year than Novak. I'm not really going to go there. Because I don't equate all the titles of equal importance. I just don't. Our next one is from Fernando. Hi, Gil. Love your content. Thank you. Do you think Casper is a future Grand Slam winner? How do you rate him against the upcoming generation of Alcaraz, Runa, and Sinner? Also, why do you think, uh, or who do you think will dominate the grass after Djokovic is gone? In my opinion, Alcaraz still struggles a lot on that surface. Okay, a couple of different questions there. Do you think Casper is a future Grand Slam winner? No guarantee. No guarantee. Not sold on that. Uh, obviously, I think it would be in a lot of ways, kind of painful if that question ended up being no when it's all said and done. I mean, Root has so much career left, but ultimately, one of the main things I'm looking for before I kind of consider you a tier one talent, and in general, the way things have gone in men's tennis, not a lot of majors have gone outside of Tier 1. And you even look at this year, because I know kind of what you say, uh, what what the common refrain is. Like, hey, Novak, 36, it, he'll be retired, and then Ruth's going to start winning, right? Eh, that's not, there's no guarantee. There's just no guarantee that that's how it's going to work. Because then you have Alcaraz. How good is Runa going to get? How good is... The guy who's 17 years old right now, and he's not on our radar. How good is that guy going to get? So there's just no guarantee with this kind of thing. Ultimately, like, Rude needs to make some leaps. He needs to make some strides. And the, the reason why I'm confident in saying that he is not going to necessarily win a major unless he gets much better than he is now, despite the fact that he's already made three major finals in his current state. And I would argue compared to last year's Roland Garros, he's actually a much better player now. You know, the guy who made the U.S. Open final and this year's Roland Garros final, I just think his backhand is way better. And I think that's made him overall a much better player. The reason I'm confident in saying that is because I don't see a lot of wins that are really all that impressive from Kasper Ruud on his resume. I made the argument uh, before this latest final that this is probably Rude's best run at a major. On paper, it is. Because you look at Roland Garros last year, and it was Chilich in the semis, and it was Runa, who at the time was ranked 40 in the world, who just, he wasn't quite himself yet. He's still not himself yet. He's, he, there's still a lot of a lot of work to be done, obviously. But again, he was 40 in the world. I think that gives you a pretty good idea. Was he underranked at the time? Sure, of course he was underranked. But still, I don't know that he was even a top 10 quality player at the time. And then at the U.S. Open, it was Berrettini and it was Hatchinov. And then at Roland Garros this year, like I want to give him the fullest credit for the Runa win in the quarters. I want to give him his flowers for the Zverev win, 
Both of those guys, top 10 in the power rankings. Where was Runa? I mean, at this point, I forget. I feel like Runa was pretty high in the power rankings. Um, But now, you know, you look back at it and you provide as much context as, as possible for it. And you have two players that just weren't... They had a lot of issues in those matches. Verev was injured. It wasn't a super, super obvious injury at the time other than, wow, this guy's laying an egg. This guy's just not playing well at all in this semifinal. But other than that, it wasn't a super obvious injury. But now he's pulling out of events. So it seems clear that he had kind of a leg injury. And Runa, for the first two sets, he could barely play. Let's not mince our words here. Runa was number four in the power rankings. So on paper, awesome win. Elite elite level win. If not a, I mean, you know, borderline tier one win. Awesome. But again, you kind of color in the lines there and it doesn't look quite as impressive. So I'm still waiting for like the Runa beat a guy who's the guy and it's a it's a signature bona fide A plus tier one victory. I'm still looking for that. I don't really have that yet. That's kind of a concern. Until you do that, and preferably you do it a couple times, I don't really feel like you're necessarily in a position where it's I'm saying, heck yeah, you're gonna win majors. You gotta do that first for me from a results standpoint. And this is taking like the evaluative stuff out of it. Um like, eye test-wise, looking at his game, I actually think he's pretty close. Mentally, I think there's strides. I think he needs to back himself more. His confidence is too fragile. He needs to, I guess, grow some... I guess let's... I mean, Alcaraz's thing. What's his thing? Heart, head, cojones, cabeza, corazón, cojones, Right? I think Rude could could probably add to the cojones part of that, which is pretty hard to kind of quantify, obviously. My Monday match analysis, both for the Alcaraz US Open final and in part for this Djokovic Roland Garros final, in both analysis I was I was looking at the backhand defense. In the Alcaraz match, what was killing him was he was slicing and Alcaraz was just coming forward and putting away floaters. In the Djokovic match, Novak wasn't really sneaking in off of the slice, but he was taking full control off of the slice. So you guys know that I really want him to improve his backhand defense. Um, but look, he moves great. He serves great. Forehand weapon is there. There's a lot of stuff that when I'm just, if I throw away the results and I'm just evaluating what does this guy have, I'm actually pretty positive on it. I really am. Because I also think the backhand, which used to have a ton of major issues, it was so loopy. He couldn't flatten it out. It it, it didn't. It wasn't good down the line. He's actually fixed a lot of those things. Okay, let's kind of move on to the other parts of this question. How do you rate him against Alcaraz, Runa, and Sinner? I mean, a little bit lower than all of them right now. Especially because he's older. You got to remember, I mean, the age thing is not comparable. He's 23, right? I'll fact check this, but I think he's 23. Casper Rude age. 24. There you go. December. December of 1998. That's when he was born. All right. Okay. Uh, who do you think will dominate the grass after nope, after Djokovic is gone? I'm going to take a pass on that question. I mean, I can go for days, but at the end of the day, there's no clear answer. I've spoken highly in the past of Medvedev on grass. I, I think he's just a couple of adjustments away from really doing well on that surface. I've spoken highly in the past of even Alcaraz's potential on grass. So you say, in my opinion, Alcaraz still struggles a lot on that surface. That was the last part of Fernando's comment. Let's give him a sec. Let's give him a sec. Because I get, you know, the, the technique on the forehand is a little bit troublesome and the pace absorption skills need to get a little bit better. 
and he needs to become less susceptible to being rushed. But that is something that, as I've talked about before, a ton of young players have to improve in that area. It's one of the most common it's one of the most common pitfalls of young players is that their their strokes take a little bit too long to produce because when you go pro, the game just gets a lot faster than it was before. You got to understand that like in the juniors you get away with this stuff. In the even in the ITFs you get away with this stuff and you still get away with this stuff even on the main tour, but then you face Sinner and Djokovic and the pace of play is just at a different level. And that's where you you stop getting away with it. So give Alcaraz a second because the offensive, first of all, just the offensive personality, but then even the offensive skill set and the transition game and all that uh, and the serve, which I still think is going to keep getting better and better and better. I, I, I'm pretty sure Alcaraz is going to win Wimbledon's. Plural, Wimbledon's. Yeah, I think so. Okay, let's go to the next one. Tennis Lover. Also a comment that got a lot of likes, 23 likes. Hey Gil, the question that bothered me the whole RG23 is that how can Djokovic play somewhat mediocre in the sets until tie breaks? Then he starts dominating. His serve looks better. His shot tolerance goes higher. He starts playing low percentage shots. What do you mean by that? I don't know what you mean by that. He starts playing low percentage shots. I don't get what you mean by that, but I'll continue. I don't understand that he surely has that tiebreak level in him the whole match. So why not constantly play with that level and finish easily and early? Why make it difficult on himself? It means... It means he can play way better in sets in every aspect. So why take it to tie breaks and then suddenly turn God mode? I'm really curious. Bit of a long one. Sorry. Love your content, by the way. Thank you. Good question. <laughs> okay. I'm going to make an analogy. I guess. I think there's a lot of reasons for this. But first, I'm going to make an analogy. Okay. And this, this relays more to the physical and mental side of it. All right. If we were doing wind sprints, we were training wind sprints, let's say 200 meters, 200 meter sprints. And we were going to go, we're going to do 10 of them. And you're going to get 45 seconds rest between your 200 meter sprints. And if I, if I have the specifics of this, if any of you track coaches out there are like, Gil, that's an insane drill for whatever reason, bear with me because it's been a long time since I've done wind sprints. So maybe that's a little bit ambitious. I don't know. But anyway, we're going to do 200 meter sprints, 45 seconds rest. We're going to do 10 of them. All right. Your fastest ones. Uh, 10 is too many, actually. Let's do, um, let's do five of them. So your fastest ones should probably be your first couple. Maybe it's not your first. Maybe it's your second because you're a little more, I don't know, warmed up or whatever. Who knows? All right. But your first, your second, uh, you're probably going to get slower on your third. You're probably going to get slower on your fourth because you're getting tired. But then you have one more. And it's your coach is getting in your ear and it's let's go. Everything you got right now, empty the tank. You're almost there. Come on. I want to see it right now. Beat your time. I mean, this is where you get to kind of, you get to hit the red line. You get to go past the red line. You see the finish line. It's over. It's all out. It's push. There's no conservation because subconsciously when you're running the, the third one and you're running the fourth one, you know, you have more remaining and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you think you're giving a hundred percent. The fact is you're not, you're not giving a hundred percent for the number three and number four. There is a level of conservation that you're engaging in. It's human nature. 
it's self-preservation as well because you got to be able to finish. So there's a level of focus. There's a level of, of motivation and a willingness to push the limit physically that occurs in this tie break where it's the same thing for Djokovic uh, in these breakers where it's like, let's go right here, right now. Everything you got, I will die on this court. I must win this point. And of course, he's going to play better like that. The second part of this, other than pushing yourself as hard as you can, and it's impossible to do that point in and point out. And some players who have been able to kind of get close to doing that, Nadal, Jimmy Connors, I think McEnroe, believe it or not, uh, Ferrer, the players who are able to come close to doing that, it becomes a real asset. A real, real asset. But for 99.99% of players, actually for all players, it's impossible to do that to the max. And then for most players, they don't even come close to doing that. To be able to play every point with a 10 out of 10 desire, effort, will, intensity. It's impossible. Okay, so now it's the tie break. We know that Novak is going to have that, that redlining intensity and physical drive and mental drive because it's not just about pushing yourself physical physically it's also about focus focusing mentally okay so we know that that's going to be in overdrive the next part is the nerves like that's the second equation and that is why most players do not experience the same rise in level that Novak does because their nerves are getting in the way of that and that's why most players under pressure are worse. Most players are playing their best tennis on the practice court. Medium tennis throughout the match. And their worst tennis when it really counts. Look, maybe a lot of pros at the highest level, that's not true about them. That's because they're amazing. That's because they are playing matches, you know, their whole life. And every day out of the year. But for most human beings, that's how this game works. For me, I don't play enough matches these days. Six all in the tie break. I'm probably not going to play as well as I need to play. Because it's hard. You know? Anyway, Novak has a combination of being able to push himself and the guy isn't affected by nerves, which is one of his greatest superpowers. Something that I've tried to highlight over and over again, covering him, especially, again, since he's gotten so efficient at winning these big matches, 2015 and beyond, especially, he's, he's not feeling nerves here. When he does feel nerves, it's usually at the beginning of matches and not at the end. I don't know why that is, but that's just how it's been. So it's also his opponent's level dropping. And it's also a play style that is pretty conducive to taking advantage of his opponent's level dropping. I think Rafa's been pretty good in this category either. If you don't make mistakes in really, really big moments, you are giving your opponent an opportunity to make nervous, unforced errors. You are giving your opponent an opportunity to get tight and to feel the negative effects of tension. But if you miss, you're actually, you're actually not. You're actually not even, you're not even testing the guy who's probably more nervous than you are if you're Djokovic or Nadal on the other side of the net. So that is why, again, if you really dig into the data here on what happened in these tie breaks, Djokovic made less unforced errors. His opponents made more unforced errors. A lot of these tie breaks, even the ones like against Hachinov that he won seven love, a lot of these tie breaks that he even crushed in, he was not actually hitting that many winners and forcing that many errors. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's go to the next one. It is from Leon Yang. Hi, Gil. Has Djokovic even tried his best at non-Grand Slam tournaments? Because his mental focus to Grand Slam is just so drastically different from other tournaments. Is he just trying to put enough focus to get through the best of three matches, knowing that if he can win those matches without full focus, he can win Grand Slams? Like, I don't think if Runa played him at the French, Djokovic would lose. He probably would win in straights. I mean... There's a couple of aspects to this question that I'm a little bit confused about, but you're trying to get, basically say, is Novak trying his best in non-Grand Slam tournaments? To which I say, what do you mean by trying his best? When he's on the court, when he is playing, he is trying his best to win the match that he is currently competing in. Now, maybe there's a little bit less desperation you know, a little bit less focus, sure. But I think it's his preparation that is actually suffering and making it hard for him to win non-slams nowadays, especially tournaments that are not close to major titles. I would say for 2023, keep in mind, there was health issues. I think the elbow thing was a, a real issue for him throughout clay season. So you got to just factor that in and you can ignore that but ignoring that, you're you're really misguiding yourself if you're ignoring that because that was a big factor here. Uh, but in general, I think he's prioritizing rest at certain parts in the calendar, and he is building himself up slowly into condition. Whereas he used to be able to put the put the miles on and train hard year round to kind of keep himself in shape all the time. And the reason why maybe it's not, I, I don't think he feels like it's the best thing for his body and for his longevity to do that anymore. But just listen to what he's saying here. Like Djokovic has been saying for a long, long time that the majors are now the priority and that everything he does is around peaking for the slams. And do I have the fullest insight? Man, this would be a great interview question. If I got to sit down with Novak, this would be delightful. And I don't know if he would give me full transparency because this might kind of get into certain trade secrets. But I would like, I would love to ask Novak, okay, let's dive into this. What does that look like? You have been saying for three, four years now that you want to peak emotionally and physically for the slams. Take me behind the scenes here. What are you, what are you doing? Like, let's take a Roland Garros lead up. What are you doing in February? What are you doing in March? What are you doing in April? What are you doing in May? So that come June, that's your time. That's your peak. Like, how does that, how does that all play out? And how are you actively making that happen? But look, it hasn't been that hard, like, I've kind of picked against Djokovic a lot at Monte Carlo, uh, in Madrid, these last couple of years, and I've been right. It hasn't been hard. It hasn't, like, I, sh I shouldn't get that much credit for being right here. All I'm doing is listening to Novak here. I mean, yes, I'm also looking at the history, evaluating the history, and coming to my own logical con conclusions about how Novak comes from kind of February vacation and never looks all that good in March and April. In this case, I think it's been February and March vacation. And by the way, it's even if you want to train really, really hard and push yourself, it's really hard to do it when you don't have things that you're, you know, markers that you feel highly motivated to achieve. So if Novak care deeply, 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 deeply about winning Monte Carlo, then yeah, maybe I'm sure it would be easier to push himself in March when he's at home, not allowed to play Indian Wells in Miami. 
But when you're at home, not allowed to play Indian Wells in Miami, you're not getting your matches in, and you expect that he's going to be able to train hard enough to simulate the rigors of match play to get himself to a point where he's ready to win Monte Carlo? That's that's insane. And and read the comment sections of like my, the Monte Carlo preview with how many people are just like, wait, so you think that Novak's not training hard? Like, what are you what are you talking about, man? Of course he's training hard. He's he's gonna win Monte Carlo. It's it's not about that. There's training hard, and then there's like getting into I'm gonna win Monte Carlo shape. And the answer to can you do that or can or is Novak motivated enough to do that <laughs> when he's at home not playing matches? The answer is no. Of course not. Because it's damn hard. It's damn hard to push yourself to the to the limits to, to get yourself ready to win at this, the highest level. Um, and he's just not doing it anymore, clearly. And it's preserving him also. Because you're putting more wear and tear on your body if you're doing those things. Next one's from Austin. Why is there no grass 1000? If Sinner doesn't... Wait, are these multiple questions? If Sinner doesn't win another title this year, how concerned would you be? Out of Fritz Sinner Rude, who do you expect to leave the top 10 and never return first? Okay, why is there no grass 1000? Um, because none of the venues are obviously capable or suitable for grass 1000s. Another thing was the calendar. You know, it used to be two weeks between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. And at that time, you know, it would have been a non-starter to put a 1000 there, I feel. Right? You can't put a 1000 there. So now that it's three weeks, it's a little bit more feasible. Um... But I always like to point out, like, everybody wants a grass 1,000. It's very clear from the mailbag. If Sinner doesn't win another title this year, how concerned would you be? Kind of concerned. Kind of concerned. I mean, he should be... He, he needs... He needs to finish some tournaments with lifting trophies, championship trophies. I, that's very important because at this point, I just feel like the scar tissue is building up for him. And it's... That that's something that never it's never really permanent. Like I don't think a player would normally how how often does a player retire and we look back and we're like Yeah, man, they didn't win enough titles because they just couldn't figure out how to win finals or couldn't figure out how to win semifinals. We saw with FAA the dam broke, right? We saw with FAA Lost his first eight finals as soon, and then last year he won what four out of his five, I think. So once you win one, it usually figures itself out. We've also seen that for majors, like Rude couldn't pass the third round of a major. He couldn't remember that, and it was like, what's going on here? Like this guy is way too good to constantly be kind of freaking out in the third round of every major and losing. But then he wins that five setter last year. In Paris, I think it was against Davidovich Vakina. No, it was not. It was against somebody else. Sinego? Some, someone. Anyway, he wins a five-setter in the third round. Then he ends up making the final. Now he's made two major finals since. There you have it. So usually these things kind of break themselves. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's important that Sinner wins an, another title before the end of the year. Uh, who's going to leave the top 10 and never return first? N none of them. But I mean, Fritz, maybe I, I don't know. I don't. I don't like that question. I don't get that question. All right, next one is from Stephen Roberts. Hey Gil, I asked this before, but I don't think I got it in on time. Who wins their maiden slam first between Sinner, Runa, Rude, Tsitsipas, and Zverev, and who wins one last or is most likely to never win one? Thank you for your great work as always. Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. Good question. Who wins the first slam first? Always an interesting question. A, a really never-ending question. I feel like you could take a snapshot of tennis at any point in time, and this question would be a relevant question. Sinner, Runa, Rude, 
Tsitsipas, Zverev. I think Holger. I think Holger's in the best. Holger's my answer right now. Because you look at the position of his career right now. You look at his age. You look at his trajectory. It's another example. And I, I thought it was important to kind of remember that this was the case with Alcaraz last year. Where people were poking holes in Alcaraz's game last year. Especially when he, he lost a lot after the U.S. Open. And people were acting like that matters. It never freaking mattered. That really frustrated me. I mean, how dumb was that? Like, who cares? It's after the U.S. Open. He just won the U.S. Open. He's allowed to lose matches. Um, again, I, I discriminate against certain parts in the calendar. I do. And after the U.S. Open, after the Australian Open, those are the two spots. I, I don't think they are a good I don't think they give you a really awesome picture of who is going to win the most important tournaments in the future. I digress. I digress. So for Alcaraz last year, I thought like, okay, you can poke holes in his game. You could be like, Gilly doesn't serve well. Gil, he doesn't really manage his nerves so well, or he doesn't look so good after winning that U.S. Open title, or he's too inconsistent and erratic. And it's like, hey, you realize, right, that he's 19 and he's about to have another offseason? He's about to have, like, five weeks to just train and get better, and his coaching is good. And he has a really strong desire to improve and learn and get better. And he's like super humble that way. He's a very coachable player. You realize that, right? So like, why are we evaluating the current, the current Carlos Alcaraz at the end of 2022, where it's very possible that 2023 Alcaraz is better it's, no, it's never a given. It's never a guarantee that a player is just going to get better every offseason. But in this case, it happened. I believe Alcaraz is better than he was last year. And I think Runa's in the same position. You can poke holes in who Holger Runa is right now. And you can say, hey, that guy's not ready. That guy's got, got these issues and, and that issue and whatever. And it's, okay, cool. But what's he going to look like next year? Because it's possible that we don't have a first-time major winner at the next two majors. It's possible that, I don't know, couldn't you see like Djokovic-Wimbledon, Medvedev-US Open or something like that? Or Djokovic-Wimbledon, Alcaraz-US Open, Djokovic-Both, Calendar Slam, like Grand Slam. You, you could see all those scenarios. None of those sound too crazy to you, do they? Do any of, do any of those sound wild? I don't think so. So... That's why I see I see Runa as a dude who is pretty close to being there and very young and on a super fast upward trajectory. Whereas Sinner's, Sinner's trajectory, a lot slower. Kind of always has been. Steady, but slower. Rude hasn't I mean, Runa, here's an example. I, I started talking about the signature wins thing at the start of the mailbag. Think about how many more signature wins Runa has than Rude already. And Runa's been around for a lot less time. But Runa's got the Djokovic win in Paris. Runa has... Um, you know, the, the Djokovic win in, in Rome, even. He's got, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I won't I won't go through it. We can look at the top five wins, and that, that kind of tells you the whole the whole picture, right? He's he's seven and two against top five players. Uh Tsitsipas, that's a guy whose trajectory is not clearly up. It's not. It might be, it has the potential to be, but tell me, tell me that Stefano Tsitsipas 
is much better right now than he was two years ago. That's unclear. Zverev, part of it is an injury, unfortunately. But same thing, same question. Tell me that Zverev is better right now than he was two, three years ago. Can't. And those guys have continuously been kind of tier two contenders. And they will continue to be. And can a tier two contender win a major? Sure they can. It happens. But not always. Next one is from Angelos. Hey Gil, how would you assess Rublev's season so far? He hasn't won as many titles as the past few seasons. Uh, just the one at Monte Carlo, but it's a big title. How do you see him going during the grass court season, the American hard court swing, and the indoor season? Secondly, you mentioned about what's next for Djokovic in terms of records. Do you think most wins is something that he can achieve? He's about 200 or so wins and also winning each Masters three times. Cincinnati and Monte Carlo, the ones which he has won two times. I mean, here's the thing about winning each Masters three times. No one's ever won all of them two times. So like, I mean, the statement or the point of that record has already been made. It's like, I don't think it's, I, I actually don't think there's that big a difference. The point is nobody has won all of the Masters multiple times. I think, I feel like that's the record. So what's the difference between two and three? Is that crazy? Maybe that's dumb. I don't know. Wins? Who even has the most wins? Is that Connors also? Most wins of all time ATP. I don't even know who has this record. Um, big titles. ATP 500s, ATP rankings, unbeaten streaks. I'm on like the Wikipedia page of records here. Is that even going to come up here? I don't even think. No, it's not even here. Who's got? I'm going to go to Ultimate Tennis Statistics. I think that that I think they'll have it. Most wins, most wins, records. Most. It's funny because it does feel like this should be a somewhat relevant statistic or a relevant record, I should say. But it's kind of not. Most titles, most masters, titles, 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 titles. Why are all of these about titles? What about wins? Why is this so hard to find? This is bad podcasting i guess also all right i can't find it come on really oh i think i got it oh it's jimmy connor's 1274 wins yeah so here's the thing about wins like total wins like it's i don't know it's cool i guess but it's a total longevity stat i mean if you look at most Okay, Richard Gasquet just got his 600th win this week. Huge accomplishment. Congrats to him. But, yeah, it's a lot about how long you can stick around. So, I think titles and year-end number ones, it's, it's, it's a better uh, signifier of... It's a better signifier that, that you were actually competitively dominant in certain ways versus wins. Um, okay, but Rublev's season, that was the main part of the question. I think that's why I took the question. It's the most interesting part. Uh, um, at the end of the day, it's tough with Rublev's season. I, I think the big title is actually is actually the most important part of this because coming in if if I said let's make a realistic goal for Andre Rublev let's make a marker that is going to mean a successful 2023 for Andre Rublev there's no doubt about what I would have said I would have said Andre wins a big title or makes it past a major quarterfinal I shouldn't say or I should say end I I would say before the year, and I, I think I actually said this, 
Rublev needs to try to win a big title, and he needs to try to make a major semifinal. And if he does those two things, then that's a successful season. Because at a certain point, it's about accomplishments for Rublev. Andre's another guy. I don't think he's at the point where it's like, based on, I'm going to use that word again. Sorry, you've heard this word too much in this podcast by now, and especially in these last 15 minutes, but I'm going to use the word trajectory again. Rublev is, is not on the trajectory where you're like, all right, Andre, clock's ticking. Like, when are you going to get good enough to win a major? Like, when are you going to be top five? When are you going to be top three? Come on. I, it's it's inappropriate to put that on Rublev's shoulders because he hasn't really shown that that's going to be the player that he should become or is, which is okay. And that's kind of the tricky part about doing all of this is we have to try to determine, like, what should we expect from all of these players? And you try to be fair in that respect. And I think what was fair coming into the year is Andre's made a lot of big finals. Let's see if he can win one here. Andre's made a lot of major quarterfinals. Let's see if he can take it one step further and win one here. So he's got one of those in the books. If he makes a major semifinal, that's a successful year for Rublev. If he doesn't, then I think it comes down to does he make another year-end championship? And I think Rublev is in the caliber of player. I think he's made three in a row now, but he's always kind of outside the top five. I think he might have... He maybe has a year-end number five, if I'm not mistaken. I think 2020, he might have been year-end number five. But usually, he's outside of that top five. If he can just kind of make another one of those, that to me is just chugging along and being a successful Andre Rublev. So that's kind of my answer to the question. I think it's been a pretty successful season, but that's because... I don't really expect him to make massive leaps in his career. And it would be cool if he kind of did that, but it's just not really what I expect out of him. Next one's from Zach. Will Yannick Sinner ever win a Grand Slam? I know a lot of people, including myself, would say yes, since he has so much room for improvement on his serves and volleys. However, more and more have been saying he won't get over the hump. And his play at Roland Garros didn't help matters. What do you think? I could see him winning a Wimbledon or two once Novak retires. I think we got to calm down. That's what I think. I think we got to pump the brakes on the Yannick Sinner discourse. I think it's been out of control. I think it's been, it's been very wild here. I don't know what happened because I don't think this was happening before this year. But suddenly, Sinner kind of, like, Sinner was not a top 10 player last year. Not even in the top 10. Now he is a top 10 player. Where is Yannick in the race? Number 6 in the race. Can we give him a second? Can we give him a second to now, like, now he needs to kind of start to get comfortable in a new phase, in a new role which is I am no longer a, a young, you know, 20-ish-year-old player, a player on the outside looking in, trying to become a contender for big titles week in and week out. Now I think he has gotten to the point where he is an outside contender for big titles on all surfaces because he's gotten better this year. Now he is there. Now, allow him to develop into the next phase. The next phase is he can win these big titles. Not that he's an outside contender, but he's not very good at finishing them and actually getting the job done in the end because he struggles with his nerves, which in my opinion right now is where he's at. He's made the quarterfinals of all four majors. He, at 21 years old, has won eight uh, sorry, seven career titles. That's a really good number. Uh, he's having the best year of his career. Win percentage continues to go up every single year. Just allow him to continue to get better. Because that's what Yannick Sinner is doing. And everybody, for some reason, wants him this year to have just made that leap to, uh, I'm Yannick Sinner, and I'm going to win some, some majors and some masters. 
I don't think it's unfair to say like Sinner is talented enough and capable enough to win some Masters 1000 titles. And uh, I might have picked him to win one this year. Did I pick him to win one? Did I pick him to win Monte Carlo? I can't remember. I think I may have. No. I, I wouldn't have done that after the Miami thing. Would I have? I don't think I did. Who did I pick? I'm actually going to look. I'm curious. Uh, but despite me picking Sinner uh, in, in some of these big tournaments to, to do extremely well, uh, by the time Roland Garros came around, I'm like, look, he's a contender. Sure, he's kind of in there, but like, he's not ready to do this. Not with the lack of kind of big match nerve management that he has shown. You know, that's where he's really lacked. I'm pulling it up. Who did I pick to win Monte Carlo? Oh, yeah, I went wild with Fritz. Mm. See, because my take, my take in that tournament was somebody weird's going to win it. Someone weird. So I, at least I got that part right. I had Rublev to the semis. All right, next one. From Pedro. Hi, Gil. As a Brazilian, I feel I feel as though it is my duty to ask you about Bia Haddad Maya following her historic run at RG. She's a bit confusing as a player to me, even though she's probably the one I watch the most. Do you think she can sustain a top 10 level? What is slash should be her best surface? And thank you for the outstanding coverage. Thank you. Uh, Haddad Maya couple of nuances that I've noticed about her game that I guess uh, could be could be insightful. I mean, she actually, for her size, doesn't have that much natural power. She makes up with it. She makes up for it with how well she holds the baseline, does a great job of kind of minding her court position. She plays on the she's very comfortable playing on the rise fantastic playing on the rise. So I think the ball, even though she's not hitting that big, the ball is coming pretty fast. It's the first thing. Her precision is fantastic. And especially, that, that goes in especially to her depth. I found her depth in her trade, which is where she's best. If you're going to tell me, is she an awesome defender? I'm going to say, no, not really. If you ask me, is she an awesome finisher? I'd say no. Is she an awesome player from neutral? I and it, it, I know the terminology just sounds clunky, but I guess like, is she an awesome trader? Because that's what I call it, trading. Heck yeah, she is. She's as good as it gets. Like just neutral trading. Remember, what is a good trade? A good trade is a ball that is impossible to attack, high percentage at least. So it's, you remain unattackable, and you do not miss. There is plenty of margin. Haddad Maya is so exceptional at trading. She's as consistent a player as there is. I mean, the consistency is mind-blowing to me. The depth, the precision is great. And... I think, you know, she applies enough pressure because that sounds quite passive, but I think she does apply quite a bit of pressure with the way she can hug the baseline and move the ball around the court. I really think grass is her best surface. I don't think it's clay. I think she has to work too hard on clay. Now, a prerequisite for her with the fact that she doesn't have a lot of easy ways to finish points. And despite her height, she doesn't have a big serve. Uh, and the fact that, you know, she kind of has to play long rallies to be successful. A prerequisite for that is she needs to be super fit. And boy, did she, I mean, that was the most impressive thing about her Roland Garros run is she played so many marathon matches and she continued to hold up physically, even in many cases after losing the first set. So that was essential and that was so impressive and she needs that. So she has the fitness, she has the trading, where, you know, she's going to be the more consistent player and she's going to remain unattackable and she's going to make you suffer in that respect. I think grass just gives her 
rewards her, I would say, and gives her the most penetration. She's got a flat backhand, especially on the flat backhand. She can just kind of do more damage and I think build the point and finish the points a little bit better on grass. And I think it's important that she gets a little help in that area to be at her best. Uh, the other thing is with her leftiness, I do think she protects her second serve a lot better than most women on tour. Uh, because she has a good, precise second serve. I think she, and this is a weird thing. I don't often compliment players on this. But she is tremendous at hitting her second serve with good depth. Depth in the service box, of course. And I think between that and having the lefty spin, uh, I think players struggle to attack her second serve. And on the WTA Tour... And we talk about this both with on the return and the serve. Attacking second serves is a huge currency on the WTA Tour. Huge currency. So it's a big deal if you're excellent at attacking second serves. And it's also a big deal if you're excellent at hitting second serves in a way where it's hard for them to be attacked. All right, I think two more, and then we're going to call it a quits. This one's from Jiggy. All right, some compliments. Thank you for that. A couple of questions. Okay, here we go. I think it's fair to say that mental strength in modern tennis, and in fact all sports at the highest level, is only becoming more and more important. Novak has been very open about the importance of his mental training strategies, visualization, introspection, etc., and it clearly seems to be serving him well as he is a level above everyone else mentally. Firstly, to what extent do you think that you can train your mentality with such techniques? And also, uh, if, you think that, if you think you can, why do you think that other players haven't caught on with putting in the mental work, especially seeing how pivotal it has been in Novak's career? For example, do you think all pros regularly consult sports psychologists and adopt these techniques? Because I rarely hear anybody other than Novak talk about the importance of mental training, which makes me feel like they don't put in as much mental work. Thanks. Well, it's going in the direction of every player investing in this, especially players who can afford to do it. I I think the majority of players, and you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've heard this, but it's been a long time since I have, but I think I've, I've heard it from pretty solid sources on tour who are, you know, just in the coaching world that most players are doing at least something to address the mental side, working with mental coaches, working with psychologists. There's a difference between those two. Um, now, part of this is it's stigmatized. So when you say that you don't hear a lot of players talk about that, a lot of players are private about it, which is kind of silly. But it's true. Players are also private about using analytics. I know that some, there are some players on tour who have crucial parts of their team that they, they do not allow to sit in their box because they, they are in some way ashamed for those people to have public stature you know, or a public status. And a lot of the times they are mental coaches. A lot of the times they are analytics people. So there's that. Uh, but I also think just like anything else, uh, mental training is super important. Uh, everybody, you know, every pro should be investing in it and doing in it, uh, doing it. And I think, you know, it, it can go a really, really long way. I also say that just like physical training, it's not like anyone can, you know, all they want to, all they do is snap their fingers, be like, yeah, I'm going to invest in, in doing this. I'm going to commit to doing this. And then I'm going to have the mental game of Novak. Obviously it's not like that. Your personality matters. You know, your deeply ingrained personality matters. Uh, I think a lot of it is upbringing and DNA and who you've surrounded yourself by. I mean, there's so many factors here that are going to affect how you're able to compete. So, I mean, I'm not an expert on this part of things at all, but 
you know, I would think that just like getting really good coaches that will train you in your technique, just like getting really good coaches that will train you in the gym, how to, how to get strong and optimize your body for tennis, just like you can do those things, part of it is the hand that you are dealt. Coaching can only get you so far. Training can only get you so far. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.